Welcome to the Investor Download, the podcast about the themes driving markets and the economy now and in the future. I'm your host, David Brett. Just to note, there's an acronym we use towards the end, NGFS. It stands for Network for Greening the Financial System. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres said humanity is on a highway to climate hell with its foot on the accelerator. Emissions need to fall by 45% by 2030 to keep global warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. That would see 10 million fewer people lose their homes, 50% reduction in the number of people facing water insecurity, among many other things. But the latest report from the UN suggests we've 50% chance of breaching the 1.5 degrees Celsius in the next nine years. So as COP27, the UN's climate change conference in Egypt draws to a close, I spoke with Maria Teresa Zapia, Deputy CEO of Blue Orchard and Head of Sustainability and Impact at Schroders, and Holly Turner, a climate specialist at Schroders Capital, about what's been achieved at COP27 and what needs to be done to get us off this highway to climate hell. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, you're listening to the Investor Download. Maria Teresa, welcome to the show. It's your first time. Yes, it is. Very nice to be here, David. Absolutely. How are you liking the studio? It's love it. Here. Love it. And it's also so comfortable. You just have to pop up. Yeah, absolutely. And Holly, welcome back to the show. It's been a while. Yeah, it has. It's been a while, actually, been? isn't it? Yeah, good. Thank you. Good. Excellent. Well, we're going to talk about COP27 today. I know both of you have been covering it uh, broadly. Um, but Maria Teresa, you've actually been out in Egypt. So can you tell us what your experience was like out there? Yeah, so this was not my first COP, but actually it was my first COP in emerging markets. The the other COP I'd been to was uh, where Berlin and uh, Glasgow. And uh, being the first COP that I attended in emerging markets, what I was really fascinated uh, by was the fact that there were really uh, large delegations, in particularly from a number of different African countries. And uh, so the emerging market flavor is really what uh, struck me and what I loved, uh, because in Glasgow and, and Berlin, I sort of had the feeling that... You know, there was one part of the war deciding uh, for the other, while here I really felt that uh, we had, uh, you know, the people that are mostly, uh, most heavily impacted by climate change at the table. Yeah, we'll actually get onto that a little bit later in the show. But like you said, it had a different feel to it than the ones over in Europe or the Western side of the world. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, in Glasgow, I remember there was uh, a storm happening. Uh, we couldn't hear the voices of uh, of the speakers and, uh, and the delegates because there was this heavy, really, uh, rain on, on, on the tents. Uh, and uh, exactly the opposite happened in uh, in uh, in Charm, where it was baking hot. We had thirty one degrees, and uh, and so there we couldn't hear the, the 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 panelists and the delegates because the air conditioning was you know going through the roof. So very very different situations, but of course in both cases very extreme. Uh, you know, 31 degrees in in November in Egypt is not something that you would have seen uh, 10 years ago. 
Well, it was lucky it wasn't over here in the UK the last couple of days because we've been literally hit by the biggest rainstorms that I've seen in quite a long time. Okay, so before it even began COP27, it was getting a lot of bad press. Greta Thunberg called it a forum for greenwashing and plenty of commentators were asking what the point of it was. Uh, so, Marita, you first of all, what would you say was the point of COP27? So, I think uh, that as uh, COP26 uh, was concluded, it was clear that there was a lot of requests for, you know, let's say much closer follow-ups on the commitments and that a five-year cycle really didn't make any sense given the urgency of uh, tackling climate change and the action needed. Um, and this is why I think the the point of, if you want, uh, COP27 was really, uh, as, as they said it, you know, together for, for implementation and an action COP where maybe negotiations were not the, the key part, but actually is, was really starting tracking results and performance against the commitments uh, set. Um, that's the first aspect. The second aspect, as I said before, it is, it, it was in emerging markets. And I think this made COP27 really special. Uh, and it was in Africa, which made it even more special. Um, so, so these were the, 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 the main aspects. So from this perspective, I think it was an action COP. The other, the other topic was that we will discuss also later is, was the loss and damage. And, and maybe we can get back to it uh, later. Was that a similar feeling for you, Holly? Yeah, definitely. I think being based in a developing market meant that some of the other components of climate became more high up the agenda. So I think adaptation, for example, was a topic that was discussed far more often, and that's within the blue zone, so where the negotiations happen, but also in the green zone where you've got more of the kind of initiatives and, and other stakeholders that have discussions. Um, and as Maria Trazer said, I think loss and damage. So loss and damage was an official agenda item for the first time this year. Um, so I think that really demonstrates you know, how much, how important it is for some countries, particularly in developing markets. Just before the conference started, uh, Mary Robertson, former Irish president, spoke of her concerns that the 1.5 degrees Celsius emissions target might slip. Uh, now, how much of the events of the past two years specifically affected government's focus on climate change? Yeah, I think you're, you're really referring to past two years, but also almost past six months, right? Um, so, I think you know, when I, before going there, I had a feeling that these would be, the people would take COP as an opportunity to talk about, uh, uh, you know, energy prices, to talk about, uh, uh, you know, big issues in uh, consumer supply uh, chains. And so it affected, or, you know, of course, uh, the, the, the issue of uh, huge increases in food staples. And so in a way, divert on other topics, almost using this as a scapegoat, not to focus really on, uh, on the climate action topic and on, you know, what can you do? Uh, to effectively address climate change. But reality is that in all the discussion that I attended and, you know, I really went around and, and tried to 
uh, check, you know, the indigenous people uh, pavilion, the youth pavilion, and, you know, really even the ones that are, if you want, not directly linked to finance. But even so in, in all these discussions, I had the feeling that, in fact, people were thinking this is, you know, somehow a, a temporary crisis while climate it's, you know, a systemic, uh, long-term issue. So we shouldn't necessarily divert, you know, our climate trajectory and our commitments just based on, as you said, you know, the past two years or the past six months. Holly, is that what you understand from what you've heard from the uh, COP27, that a lot of leaders are seeing this as just a temporary and long-term view is still trying to keep that, uh, that limit down to 1.5 degrees Celsius? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I think the big one that I've been considering is around energy security. Um, and that's something that's happened, you know, in Europe in the last six months in particular. And whether that would be a sort of refocusing or renationalization of interest. So less collaborative action and more sort of central to individual company countries, sorry. But actually, I think what we've seen is that kind of longer term issue of climate has remained the focus. And an example being that, you know, Europe's even further made their emissions reduction targets more ambitious, even in light of the energy security issues that have been happening across Europe. So for me, that's a real signal that it is still, you know, high up on the agenda of most countries because they still feel comfortable enough to further their ambitions in the climate space. And just very final, that really that must be quite encouraging, bearing in mind the pressure these governments will be facing at home from their own population about rising costs, that they're still going to commit to these targets. Yes, absolutely. I think uh, I think there is pressure also from the population to actually deal with climate change. So I think the two pressures are there. Maybe, as you say, maybe different groups, of course, depending on where they 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 stand in, uh, you know, in uh, in the income scale, will have different views. Uh, but I think something that also COP twenty seven did was starting very much pushing with you know, the monetization of, uh, uh, of climate risks. And so if you actually do take into account, you know, climate risks as, you know, clearly very significant sustainability risks and put a number against it. And as you know, there are a lot of standards out there that have been trying to, you know, do this. Uh, then you also have another good reason actually to effectively commit uh, to, uh, you know, to climate investments. Okay, so that's one against the doubters there. There was a point to COP27. There seems to be a lot of action that's going to be taken. So in part two of the show, we're just going to look at whether the climate fight is turning into a fight between the developed and the developing countries. Get in touch with us by email at shorterspodcasts at shorters.com or visit our website, shorters.com forward slash the investor download. Developed countries a long time ago committed to paying, I think it was $100 billion a year to developing countries for the effects of climate change. So far, they've not managed to meet those obligations. Maria Teresa, why haven't they got there so far? So I think they haven't got that. First of all, because unfortunately, in a lot of commitments, and we see this, you know, in uh, certainly in a number of ACD countries and also in, 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 the, in the COP negotiations, there is effectively no watchdog that... Uh, 
uh, tells goes back to the country and said, I, I think uh, we are at 88 billion. If my number is correct, you know, you're short, uh, uh, you're short 12, uh, 12 billion to get to that 100 billion a year. So that's that's certainly an issue. Uh, uh, but the second one is that effectively, uh, and I think so this is one topic. The other topic is, um, if I may turn around, the, the, the question was in some of these sessions, I was very touched because as we were talking about this, you know, expectation of funding being channeled into climate finance and into an emerging markets, on the opposite side, there were African delegates. They say, we are not beggars. And to me, this is something that really, I mean, I, I get goosebumps because in a way they've also you know, uh, you know, since these commitments have not been fulfilled, uh, you know, a number of emerging markets are not just sitting still with, you know, expecting this uh, to, to come from somewhere. And that's where I think part of the, you know, the loss and damage discussions are also uh, turning into uh, between, uh, you know, developed markets not, have not even fulfilled their initial commitments of 100 billion, but this would still be, uh, you know, very short if we take, you know, all the damage that's been done, especially to, to emerging markets over time. Yeah, Holly, I mean, there's countries this year like Haiti and Pakistan that, again, absolutely hammered by the effects of climate change, yet they don't have the money themselves to necessarily... Uh, help themselves out of these dire situations. I mean, what more can be done? Yeah, so I think on the loss and damage component in particular, I think having a clear sort of financial cha channel is really important. So a lot of the developing countries speak of sort of the loss and damage financing being morphed into other types of aid that might go to the countries. So I think they would like to see a sort of really clear flow from the developed to the developing countries around this loss and damage act. I think one, I guess you could mark it as a success that's come through is this Global Shields initiative, which is a construct between giving money to developing countries to help with climate or weather related disasters. But it's different from loss and damage in the sense that it comes pre-disaster. So you apply for it and receive the funding um, before a disaster has occurred rather than post. Um, and I think what that does is, A, it makes the amount that you kind of estimate required smaller um, because you don't know the full effects of a disaster. Um, but I think if we look at it overall, it is a step in the right direction around, you know, this assistance or financial assistance in a disaster-related construct against climate change. Maria, sorry, is it this uh, loss and damage proposal, is that the silver bullet for developing countries or is it just a, a, along the road? I think it is along the road. And I think the other, the other discussions that I've heard, you know, the, the words that I still have in my ears are trust, partnership, and, uh, and really, in fact, partnership between public and private sector, uh, and trust, uh, you know, also because, I mean, at the end of the day, some of these markets are receivers, uh, some of these, uh, you know, markets are receivers, but they also want to, you know, be respected. They have their own priorities. I mean, I, I sat down in some discussions on green hydrogen in Africa or, you know, uh, the Congo basin uh, resources. So, and there you really feel like, you know, 
we're talking about resources that are based, you know, in these markets. Uh, there are huge investment opportunities and certainly it would be fantastic to have loss and damage as, you know, as a bigger partnership on what can we do together in terms of making this energy transition happen faster, involving, you know, the local private sector, you know, of course, local governments and, and really making them, uh, you know, actors of their own uh, faith. And just a final question, did you sense any animosity in the room between developed and developing countries or the representatives of those? Well, as I said before, you know, when I heard these African leaders saying, we are not beggars, I did, I did sense some animosity. And uh, um, so I think probably on, on, on the political, you know, representation side, yes, didn't find that at all in terms of private sector and entrepreneurs. I think they just want to share the ideas. They are convinced that, you know, just because of the simple demographic, the emerging markets will be the markets in the future. And so, and, and they have, you know, amazing opportunities to leapfrog with new technologies. And, uh, and so they, they are certainly very eager and uh, they just want to make it work. So we know the challenges that need to be overcome from both sides, uh, but in the final part of the show, we're going to look at the investment from the perspective of struggling governments and potentially uncertain businesses. Okay, so in the final part of the show, we just want to look at uh, public versus private. Um, in particular, for the first point, I just want to look at changing regimes and how difficult or what challenges that presents. So we've got China consolidating power. Uh, Brazil ha have elected Lula and ousted Bolsonaro. Democrats have done well in the uh, midterms in the US and Australia has a new pro-climate uh, pro prime minister. So with priorities seemingly changing all the time over diff different countries, what does that all mean for tackling climate change? Yeah, so I, I, you know, if I may uh, disagree, so I, I actually think that climate change is one of the few things that seems to be on course. And I say this when we talk about not only governments, but also, uh, again, uh, what we call blended finance. So really aligning public and private interests. Uh, because suddenly when you talk about climate, you know, first of all, your, uh, you know, the perimeter of your actions go well beyond, uh, you know, if, uh, if we are good at energy transition in the UK will be a huge impact on, you know, markets all around us. So I sort of have the feeling that these, it's, it's a bit the discussion that we, we had before, right? What is the current economic situation? Is it going to impact, you know, climb, the climate trajectory in the long term? Hopefully not, because it will be, you know, uh, effectively, uh, you know, a, a short, uh, if you want, impact in a longer course of things. So I, I'm very positive. I, I also have the feeling that exactly because the situation is slightly more dire, uh, that these political changes uh, will push into being more, much more active on, on the climate front. It's also a great visibility opportunity. So hopefully the new leaders will take this as their, you know, uh, way to uh, showcase how successful they can be. And we can but hope. Uh, Holly, public finances are stretched. Some governments are wavering. We've obviously uh, seen in Europe people going back to coal-fired power plants to help with the energy crisis. Um, where does that leave private investors? Are you seeing any wavering on from the private side of things? Um, I don't think I see it on the private side as much. Um, as Maria spoke about, I think blended finance is a really key opportunity. 
And it's something that we did see an initiative rise at COP27, which is between central banks and the NGFS. And it's all around the construct of blended finance. So the initiative aims to demonstrate previous projects that have been successful, basically to try and incorporate more people within the private space into blended finance to show how you know you can um, balance out the risk between different players and it opens the market up a bit more. Um, so the idea of the initiative is is twofold. It's to show success in the past um, and also to then offer projects out. So to build these sort of new or in-development projects um, that players from, you know, the public and the private sector can be involved in. Okay. Is there any more pressure on private finance to get involved given the public finances are stretched? I do think there's an element of pressure. I think if you read a lot around um, the initiatives that come through, a lot of them seem to have this segment that's sort of promised by the private sector. Um, so an example being, it's not so much at COP, which I know is a bit of a cough out, but <laughs> at the G20 meeting this week in Bali, um, they've agreed to assist Indonesia in phasing out their coal. And what was interesting is, is that half of the committed amount of money is from the private sector. So it's a G20 meeting, um, but half of that money is coming or being committed to from the private sector, which I think is really interesting. You know, they're not at the table so much with the G20 meetings, but they're, they're portioning out this significant component of that kind of government promise from the private sector. Um, and I guess just to highlight, I think it is a really strong move, this Indonesia phase out. It's off the back of what they did last year with South Africa, which is a similar promise. Um and I think they've, they're saying that the next one to come is Vietnam. But, you know, that that private sector is a real signal. They're signaling a, a key involvement from the private sector within those phase out plans. So, Marisa Fraser, if they're trying to get more private sector involvement, what role will regulators play? Because there will be a lot of investors out there that yes. will be invested in these types of funds. Yeah. Regulators must be playing a part. Absolutely. And, you know, I was really thinking what uh, about what um, Holly just said. Effectively, part of the private sector involvement in climate is also that they have to, uh, you know, more proactively report on their, you know, footprint, uh, climate footprint, uh, uh, carbon footprint of their portfolios. Uh, they have, as you know, uh, for example, um, set targets like the science-based target indicators. So in effectively, they're also pushed by, I'm not sure if the regulator, but let's say by an interest and a commitment to measure their carbon footprint into, you know, uh, finding uh, investment solutions about this. We have, you know, a number of uh, institutional um, investors that are, you know, literally approaching us, uh, looking at climate solutions. So I, I think it, the regulator sets the frame, if you want, and of course sets the standards and, you know, provides guidance on, uh, on, uh, the measurement uh, part, uh, but at the end of the day, I think the the you know the especially some some investors are very well advanced in their analysis on how they want to have their portfolios reshaped uh, to uh, to effectively have uh, a lower carbon footprint, and I think this is fantastic because there is so much opportunity in uh, in terms of what some you know as you say, large trillion dollar, you know, asset owners can do. Uh, and of course, a big role for asset managers as well. Yeah. 
So, Holly, all this talk of sustainability being pushed into the background, certainly from a private investment point of view, is not actually happening. It's actually uh, building momentum. Yeah, definitely. And I think going back to what Maria Theresa said, the standardization of reporting is is really key. So I, I don't think regulators define what financial institutions do or want to achieve in the climate space. I think it's there in its own right. I think what regulators bring is a standardization of reporting so we can evidence clearly um, to our clients those efforts that are, I think, most of the time organically coming through within the private sector. Okay, so final question. Um, first to you, Holly. Uh, COP27 is coming to an end, but COP15 is starting in a couple of weeks, starts on 7th December and it lasts for about 12 days. First of all, can you explain what COP15 is and what we can expect from it? Yeah, sure. So COP15 is it's a similar contract to COP27, um, but it's for biodiversity and nature. So it's still that COP convention of the parties, the negotiation and the sort of initiatives that come from COP events. Um, but the focus is on a different environmental issue. Uh, we're moving from climate change into biodiversity and nature. Okay, Maria, so is it, are you heading to COP15? I'm not, uh, but I think it's. I'm very excited about COP15 because certainly as we you know, we have structured, you know, the, the climate talks on, as we said before, on mitigation, adaptation and natural capital. Very often we think about uh, biodiversity and natural capital as, you know, being almost like an item and forget that there is biodiversity in climate adaptation. There is biodiversity in climate mitigation. So it's, it's great to have, uh, you know, an opportunity for a lot of actors to, to get together. Also, as you know, natural capital is really a new asset class. So we know that there is a, a really a large group of, of private actors that will be for the first time almost talking to each other. Excellent. And we will be covering natural capital in a future podcast. Exactly. And we will have colleagues, of course, going there. Absolutely. Uh, Maria Theresa, Holly, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, David. And you can find out more by reading uh, Holly's piece, What's the Point of COP27, at schroders.com forward slash insights, where you can read, watch and listen to much, much more. Well, that was the show. We very much hope you enjoyed it. If you want to find out more, check out our website, schroders.com forward slash the investor download. You can also get in contact with us about anything in the show or ideas for future shows at Schroders Podcast at schroders.com. Please remember to subscribe to us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review. We're now doing one show a week, which will be available every Thursday from 5pm UK time. Thanks very much for listening, but above all, keep safe and go well. Cheers. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation or recommendation of any funds, services or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. 